Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is going on, everybody? It is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming at you today with another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast, where we're going to take off of our last episode of uh, neurodynamics. We want to go a little bit deeper into some discussions of applying it to the upper extremity, upper quarter. Um, before we do that, Jared, how are we doing today? Man, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, you know, it's bright and early uh, on a Sunday morning, and I'm looking outside, and there is a couple of inches of snow on the ground on this fine Texas day. And uh, I don't think we're going to get above uh, like 18 degrees for the next 48 hours. So this is very unusual. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Um, we had a little bit of that in Phoenix, but uh, a while ago, just like some dustings, and that's like a natural crisis here in, in Arizona. But Anyway, let's talk about upper quarter neurodynamics because I think it's it's a value because we touched upon it, kind of a general thought process around neurodynamics our last episode. Now we want to talk a little bit about how that looks in the upper quarter, upper extremity. Um, it's definitely one of those clinical pearls that I've found helpful in my practice. I know you and I have discussed of how like really looking at some of these upper extremity conditions a little bit more big picture and not just zeroing in on the tissue and hammering it with needles and scraping and, and knuckling in there and stuff again not that you can't have some effect on pain with those things but i think we'll look a little bit of course bigger picture um what's been just some of the diagnoses that you've seen in clinic jared that man if you think and zoom out maybe about some possible neurodynamic uh, contributions that you've seen some some benefit of thinking neurodynamics with those conditions I mean, <clears throat> the you, you, you can't talk about this without talking about your, um, you know, your lateral epicondylitis, or you can't you can't talk about this without talking about your, you know, subacromial impingement or lateral shoulder pain. I think that those are two of the biggest. <clears throat> and then uh, I would say coming in third, probably because I work with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, elderly people. I have a I have a big geriatric population. A lot of people think, oh, man, you know, I've got this terrible arthritis in my hands that just follows this really <laughs> neuro, neural pattern. And, and they've just been told, oh, you got this, you know, you got thumb arthritis. You got that uh, because the the first in you know, the CMC joint, you know, it, it tends to be something that hurts a lot of people. But there's also a median nerve that courses right by that joint. And I think that that gets overlooked quite a lot. Yeah. So amazingly for these diagnoses, there's nerves that travel along lateral shoulders and, you know, medial elbows. we got that lovely cubital tunnel and ulnar nerve and the lateral elbow. We have that radial nerve and, you know, posterior interosseous nerve uh, coming there. We got the radial nerve at the outside of the wrist, lateral wrist, where it can often be mistaken as, um, you know, thumb CMC arthritic uh, change, which it could be, but again, your examination needs to be thorough and examining all possible con con contributors. You don't just anchor into the tissue and well, the pain's on that tissue, there's the, and the pain must be directly, the problem must be directly underneath where the pain is. Could be, but again, let's look at some of these neurodynamic tests, the, your upper limb neurodynamic tests, uh, you know, you can get into one, two A, two B. Why they went two A and two B, I still don't quite understand, but uh, then, you know, uh, 
then three with the ulnar nerve, two B being the radial nerve. But again, you need to be able to look at these things. I think one of the things, let's talk about lateral uh, shoulder pain because it's a common one I see in clinic. And when students see it, it's one of those things. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, visualize this on the podcast video, but if you're listening, I'll I'll do my best to describe this. But what do we see in clinic commonly with like lateral shoulder pain? And we'll have the person you can't really see me too well. Let me actually get get into me um, where you do a, a, a upper just a full abduction range of motion. And oh gosh, right at that 80 to 110 or so, there's this painful spot, and it reproduces familiar pain in the shoulder which immediately, because that's how we're taught, algorithmic, PowerPoint, bullet point ways of looking at it, that's a painful arc, that must be a shoulder. Could be, would be the thing I tell folks, let's, let's just pump the brakes a little bit because what also happens at 80 to 110 degrees of abduction is you're at your max, it kind of looks like an upper limb neurodynamic test you know, one at that point, because you're putting maximal load on neural tissue. And again, recognize, I realize that you're not perfectly isolating neural tissue with these things. We can get into semantics and some of the limitations of neurodynamics and, and there's rightful criticisms. They're not, it's not any, by any means a panacea, but anyway, you, you start seeing that, gosh, well, what is, what if it is, you know, neurodynamics? Maybe if I look at how could I figure that out? Well, maybe I could add the wrist. You can't see that on the podcast right now, but maybe I add wrist flex extension and well gosh i'm at that painful spot i have them go right to the edge of it and they add wrist extension whoa it's worse or you know or, or you just ask it does that have an effect on that symptom in your arm oh yeah it, it makes it worse and it's pulling down into my arm um or you might have them just go to that painful like edge of that abduction and you have them just do a contralateral side bend away mm -hmm. and lo and behold it makes their symptoms worse and then you know ipsilateral makes it better so you're you're just looking to see if there's some sort of neurodynamic contributions, but you could do that with any of those tests, like get them in a, a radial nerve test and get them to the point of that radial wrist pain starting and see if you can change it through distal, you know, sensitization maneuvers at the neck. Um, or, or, you know, maybe again, if it's a proximal issue, you see if you can change it with uh, sensitization activities through the wrist and hand. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to not anchor on specific you know tissue diagnosis is part of the hypothesis development but if you just anchor in there and you don't think big picture um, that can really lead you down a, you know a misdiagnosis and a lack of change for patients and what do you think with does do you do you see and what is your thoughts with do you see this connecting the dots between where clinicians because i never understood jared where clinicians would start nudging on spines for radial wrist pain. Never made any sense to me. I never knew how people got there. It just was like, uh, you know, some sort of Jedi mind trick of, but then you'd see him do it. And then lo and behold, his freaking hand was changing or this radial wrist pain or, or whatever it might be for the patient distal extremity. Um, what's been your experience with kind of neurodynamics and maybe connecting the dots between wh where you might need to look at the spine? I mean, we, we mentioned this before, right? On the uh, on the repeated motions exam, in, in my mind, every single presentation, even if it's in the you know peripherally in the extremity, I have got to start at the spine and rule that out first. Uh, I, I start centrally and then I work peripherally. Um, and you know, I'm going to do my repeated motions exam and then I'm going to look at uh, neurodynamic tests. And I know you were going through the one, you know, two A, two B. I, I've simplified that because I've had students that just, they, they can't get it. And it's confusing for me too. So I just say, hey, upper limb tension test, median nerve, uh, uh, ULTT radial, ULTT ulnar, right? So I, I don't get bogged down in the 1A, 2Bs and all that sort of stuff. It's like, hey, we're, we're trying to isolate the median nerve as much as we can. You can never isolate a nerve in, you know, completely. Um, 
but I, I start at the spine and then I've got to work out from there. And, and one of the things that crossed my mind when you were talking about the, the painful arc and, you know, the, the quote unquote subacromial impingement and zeroing in on that. Well, what a lot, what a lot of people don't realize or think about is, Hey, if something hurts in your subacromial space, or if something hurts on that lateral shoulder, what's the innervation for that? Your rotator cuff muscles are innervated by C5 and C6, right? So that's that's your nerve roots there. So if you have, we, we have good evidence that if you have inflammation in a nerve root, it doesn't just affect the nerve root. It also, it also affects the sensitivity and the inflammatory chemicals all the way down that entire nerve body, right? So you can have peripheral sensitization or you can have the development of hyperalgesia anywhere along that pathway due to a mechanical irritation or a chemical irritation uh, closer up towards the spine. So if somebody does have this painful arc, right, and then at 80 to 120, they're like, oh, that really hurts. And then you start pulling in the wrist or you start pulling in the neck and that lights them up. Uh, it's really not that too, not too big of a jump to say, you might have a little bit of both going on here. And, and that's that's the biggest problem I see is that um, it's it's got to be either one or the other. It, well, it's got to be subacromial impingement or subacromial pain syndrome, or it's got to be a neck. It's got to be a neck nerve issue. Right. Well, no, it can be both, because if you have a little bit of a neck nerve issue, guess what? that's going to cause hyperalgesia down the C5 or C6 pathway. It's going to cause maybe altered muscle function, maybe guarding, maybe, uh, you know, sensitivity to load in any of the tissues that are innervated along that pathway or where, where they refer to, right? So then you got two or three or four months of altered motor patterns and hyperalgesia in those tissues associated with the C5 or C6 nerve root. And guess what? Now you do have quote unquote subacromial pain syndrome, you do have a heightened inflammatory response, or you do have an increased likelihood of sensitivity to mechanical load of those structures. And there's nothing wrong with working on both of those issues. But if you just work on the nerve, you might be left with, uh, you know, a, maybe a weakened or altered functioning uh, rotator cuff if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Or if you just work on the rotator cuff or the subacromial pain syndrome, you may be missing the, you know, underlying driver of that. So I know that I got on a rabbit hole, but I wanted to talk about that because, man, I see it a ton in clinic. And man, I see a lot of, uh, especially, you know, younger clinicians, but a lot of clinicians that don't necessarily connect the those two from, uh, you know, a neurophysiological standpoint that those, those things can be related to each other, uh, in, in a very logical way. Yeah. More reason to take the foundations of pain course that we have on modern pain care. Cause that'll start digging into some of those, those, those discussions of neurogenic inflammation. And when nerves get irritated, they can start, you know, uh, kind of orthodromically, antidromically, which I'm not going to get too nerdy into, where the nerve kind of ba basically backfires into tissues where that kind of trophic function of a nerve starts causing sensitive kind of inflammatory stuff. And that's where you can find, do you think possibly, Jared, that these sore spots of unknown origins, I know this is controversial, um, is possibly just cranky nerve sensitivity kind of materializing itself into sore spots in the body? Could that possibly be a mechanism? I, go, I know we don't have any way of perfectly real-time nerve cutting on people unless you're a real sadistic human but um probably wouldn't fly on their irbs but uh do you think that could play into a role why when you when people poke and palpate down the course and there's and i know there's some needling courses and stuff that actually embrace that yeah you're probably not needling along the course of the radial nerve or different things which and they're trying to stimulate that which i think at least there's some thought process and some some thinking behind it not just you know poking on sore spots but do you think that might be part of the the issue of like 
when nerves become sensitive, like you said, that, man, you can find tenderness. But maybe if you start tracing that tenderness up the course of the nerve trunk, you see that, gosh, all along that radial nerve, along where it goes in the radial spiral groove and the arcade of Froch and um, all these, you know, radial wrist along the, you know, uh, lateral side of the radius, radius uh, at the wrist, you might find that, gosh, there's sensitivity everywhere. Even though this is a, maybe even a, just a shoulder, lateral elbow pain, you're tracing sensitivity all throughout that arm. Um, should is that a kind of thought process you have you have in clinic as well as far as looking at that sensitivity more than just zeroing in on one spot that you might look along the course of a nerve? Uh, absolutely, a hundred percent. And <clears throat> I think that uh, it is a theoretically much more defensible uh, hypothesis than the traditional hi- uh, trigger point hypothesis. So, in uh, John Quintner. Uh, talks pretty pretty uh, in depth about this concept of um, irritation to the nervi nervorum, which is the the nerve's own innervation of itself, causing local uh, hyperalgesia and you know reduced pain pressure threshold and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know g- just Google John Quintner and read his um, a critical evaluation of the trigger point hypothesis and some of the alternatives that he uh, offers for this. So I think that that is probably my number one alternative hypothesis to the trigger point uh, thought process, as well as just the concept of referred hyperalgesia. And, and I talk quite a bit about this in a, in a lecture that I did that's freely available on uh, YouTube. And if you guys can't find it, just message us all, all about the concept of secondary hyperalgesia as well. Uh, so I think that there are so, a lot more neurophysiologically justifiable um, hypotheses to the traditional trigger point thought process. And a lot of this goes hand in hand with the concept of neurodynamics or uh, a nerve's sensitivity to mechanical load. Yeah, whether it be pressure, whether it be tension, um, can be a, a lot of different loads that that nerve becomes sensitive to. And I think uh, great to bring up John Quintner. He's kind of ruffled the feathers of maybe some of the folks that are really entrenched into some of the traditional theories around. Uh, but again, those are the folks you should be surrounding yourself around, even if that you don't perfectly agree with them, because then you just get in your echo chamber. And again, I've been in my share of echo chambers, and we continue to obviously work to get outside those. But I wanted to kind of circle back to, to the spine, because then people are like, well, how do I know, like, what what kind of process do I start employing to know, like, what to nudge on the spine to not nudge on the spine you know do like I, they just don't see like the connection and they don't know well how do i know how do i know if i'm like doing something that's having an effect well so a couple things first you should find some things that give you some some objective uh, measurement of if you're changing something could be a painful manual muscle test could be painful grip strength could be um, you know, of active range of motion could be a painful arc. So let's take the painful arc short because I love doing this. Um, we have a, we had this happen uh, recently in the clinic with some DPT students who were shadowing us at the university clinic I practice in. And, uh, you know, so we had this exact thing. It was shoulder pain that, okay, is it neck or shoulder? You know, well, actually, I'd just say, well, what's going on? What do you think's causing this? And, of course, they saw the painful arc, and it was immediately shoulder, which, again, 99.9 DPT students are going to go there. I know I would have, definitely have. I said, yes, definitely on the hypothesis. What else? And then there was kind of like, you know, some blank stares, but I, we eventually got to some neck uh, discussions and I said, okay, how do we know? And, uh, you know, just how could we take that painful arc and, and determine if it's next? So then we talked about what we just did about, you know, there's, um, you know, the sensitization things. And when we actually sensitized, it was kind of like 
great. It wasn't like, yeah, it kind of seems to. The patient wasn't sure. So it's like, would you, and I looked at him like, would you agree that that isn't really jumping off the charts? Like, whoa, that's definitely positive. But there's some weird stuff going on. You, the symptoms were just altering and, and things that didn't make perfect sense if it was just local nociceptive issue, which again, we can talk about how it's hard to separate that into specific, you know, exactly just nociception. But anyway, so I, I, the, one of the best diagnostics that I tell students about is a trial treatment. And, but also ideally what we did is we did a good thorough screen of the neck and they had some range of motion loss, uh, rotation at the opposite or towards that side. And when we got them prone and did some UPA testing, just to check sensitivity, I always say it's just, it, that's my mechanical sensitivity detector at the spine to see if there's sensitivity to mechanical input there. And, and if it's in an area that makes sense with where those symptoms are going, we know C5 tends to be the um, you know area of the uh, neck that or the nerve root that tends to supply the lateral shoulder the most. So um, you know C4, C5, C5, C6. Sure enough, there was some significant sensitivity at those levels that was different. And again, we tried to set up in a scenario where I wasn't talking myself into that being different. I'm like, do you notice, patient? Is there any difference when I'm on this side versus? Oh yeah, it's way more sensitive. And you could just feel. A, a resistance there again what that is i'm not going to get into any because it, it, i i i don't think we need to know but there was a definite didn't really enjoy me passively moving that area um so we said okay there that is what we call a comparable sign in an appropriate structure by the thought being that hey it's not perfectly reproducing their lateral shoulder pain because that's where also i used to go it's like well if it didn't reproduce that pain it's not a problem well, well let's pump the brakes that area definitely if is a problem and causing a nerve sensitivity could reproduce the symptom that I had. Sure, it didn't when I did the UPAs, but so let's do a trial treatment of C4, C5. And sure enough, we got in there and we did it, some UPAs and just simple, just nudging, not blasting into pain, just finding an entry point where the patient could get used to it and nudge and relax and breathe and not doing any impositional sadistic ways of treating. And, uh, you know, as I'm doing the nudging, I'm, hey, patient, as I'm nudging on this sensitive spot, does, it, does the sensitivity stay the same or does it change? And she said, well, it's getting better. I'm like, oh, great. And you can often feel that. And again, people say, well, that's the magical juju of your hands. I think there is some feelings you can get when somebody's receiving your passive movement and relaxing and doing better and breathing versus, you know, tensing and, and the, bo the body saying, no, thank you. Um, so we had that definite response. And then, okay, big deal with what my hands were feeling. Let's get the patient up and see. And lo and behold, they do their pain, their shoulder range of motion and it completely no painful arc, full pain-free range of motion, which um, the students are like, whoa, you know, and I know when I first saw that, I was like, man, you're amazing. And really that was nothing amazing. That's just good, solid clinical reasoning, clinical practice. So that that's just an example. You can do that with any other body part. Find some sort of objective range finding or a functional movement that's painful for them, reaching behind their back, maybe whatever it may be, and treat it and see if you change it. And again, there's definite arguments of, hey, well, if you, you can change pain easily, you know, it's not a hard thing. But if it makes a dramatic impact and that and you start complementing with specific movements that complement that and the patient's life changes significantly as a result, then I'm cool being like, yeah, I, we can nitpick over theories and what's truly happening there. And I think we should try to think of mechanic, mechanistically what's happening. But um, in that N equals one scenario, you made a difference that impacted a patient towards valued movement and goals in their life. I'm good with it. So... Um, any other things that you found clinically useful as far as approaching? Hopefully that was helpful for you guys who are listening to see like the thought process of how we would kind of look at, you know, incorporating this spinal treatment for a peripheral extremity issue. Man, <clears throat> I've got a few things that I want to talk about. I think that we're going to have to make a secondary follow-up episode to this, first of gotcha. all. Uh, but <laughs> one, of, one of the things that, uh, that I want to add on is 
to emphasize the point that in that particular patient, you did some UPAs, right? You did some uh, unilateral P to A mobilizations to their spine. And that was your approach. Uh, and I, I was walking through this patient in my head and I know what I typically do in this patient. And it is a manual therapy approach as well, but I might have that patient actually laying supine and I might do some gentle soft tissue work to the, uh, the paraspinals and a little bit of manual traction and a little bit of oscillatory rotational mobilizations. Or if there's somebody that has a high um, perception of value to uh, a high velocity, low amplitude, amplitude thrust, I might just go ahead and do a, you know, a quote unquote opening uh, manipulation oh, to their mid cervical spine. And, and then I'll have them get up and do the same thing. Like, Hey, check that out. And they, they're like, Oh my God, you're a magician because you cracked my neck and, uh, or you massaged my neck or you mobilized my neck. And now my, my arm can go up. It's like, well, no, I added some mechanical stimulus that was, you know, maybe felt good, maybe altered local muscle tone in the very short term, maybe altered um, temporary mechanical sensitivity of the nerve in that area. And they were able to move a little bit better afterwards, right? So I didn't do anything magical. And I used a totally different manual therapy approach to you. And we got the same outcome, right? Because I was walking through this scenario and I've had that same scenario, you know, 300 times. And I know what I, the manual therapy that I feel comfortable with is with the patient more in a supine position. Cause I always feel like I'm, you know, getting my thumbs too pokey on the UPAs and that sort of thing. So I've just developed a different way to do it. And we're applying a different mechanical stimulus with a different, you know, Jedi mind trick hand skills, but we're getting the same outcome because it's not about the manual therapy. It's about the fact that you're applying some sort of mechanical stimulus in the area in the inner subjective third space of, you know, the patient relationship and, and the dance with your hands on them. Right. So that's just something that I felt like was worth uh, speaking out loud about. Yeah. I, I love it because it's exactly how we teach it. I, I, we're not like, you have to do these type of glides and these type of techniques. What are you good at? What, what have you been taught? I mean, we can definitely, we do definitely instruct techniques. And if you want to learn UPAs and, some people learn the whole sal and imp glide. Some people learn more side glides. Some people call it down glides and up glides. Some people call it an upslope, or I'm sure there's other terminology, the ERSs, FRSs. If you want to nudge it based on that, but again, let's use narratives that are patient-friendly and not uh, debilitating to a patient's self-efficacy. But um, And yeah, put an input. Maybe you're a soft tissue-based therapist and you want to do some soft tissue, like Jared said. But again, have a reasoned approach of why you're tackling that area and have a way to test it and validate it with that person in front of you, which I think Jared has uh, done beautifully with that patient. And I think that's what you have to learn because otherwise you become the mud thrower at the wall and you're hoping, your fingers are crossed, you're, you're chucking things at patients. You're, you're, oh, it's changed. I did 14 things, but I have zero idea after the end of that 14 thing session, which thing helped. But if you have that test, treat, retest, really being able to find, pull out some things that are specific asterisk signs or comparable signs that the patient can demonstrate to you to tell you, to, for them to tell you if it's improving things or not, um, then you got a way to kind of really get efficient in the clinic. And if you start honing that process in, man, you can be one of those go-to clinicians for tough cases, which honestly, these cases aren't as tough if you just use a good reasoning approach. I'm not trying to say that as, you know, egotistical and things, but that case, like Jared said, 300 or so, I mean, you, it's a very common thing, but it's a very also common thing that we see clinicians who aren't really thoroughly reasoning through things, you know, kind of miss that situation. So you, as you're listening to this podcast, don't miss it. Check it. Know what you're looking at. 
Um, check the spine, check that whole course of that nerve down. Don't zero in on tissues without at least considering hypothesis and testing hypothesis. You don't want to be that availability heuristic, that anchoring bias where you hear it's lateral epicondalgia and you anchor into that diagnosis and exclude other hypotheses as a result of that. So uh, anything else you think folks would benefit from knowing when it comes to the upper extremity? Man, I've got a few things that I want to get into, but like I said, I think we should uh, we should save that for installment number two on this because uh, I have a feeling it's going to go down some rabbit holes. All right, so I guess that means people are going to have to stay tuned for the next episode here on when we go into installment two of the upper extremity neurodynamics. And it might even go a little bit out of the upper extremity, but we'll we'll uh, keep diving into this stuff deep and hopefully in ways that you guys feel is helping you clinically when you're seeing this stuff walk through your doors. So if you're enjoying these episodes, we'd like you to reach out and let us know. You know, message us on Facebook, Instagram, send us emails. We want to know what you want to listen to, what's helping you in the clinic, what questions you're you're encountering in the clinic that we could talk about. On the podcast to help you out so uh, definitely reach out hope you enjoyed this episode and we will talk to you next time this has been another episode of the modern pain podcast with dr mark cartula join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain for more information on the show visit modernpaincare.com also visit the pain masterminds network on facebook for free education and resources this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only it is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.